My name is Gunnar Mock. I'm a member here at OCC. And before we start, I have to thank Craig. Hopefully he's watching. Because he may have given me one of the most controversial and divisive topics to preach a sermon on. It's awesome. Lovely. And it's worship. We're talking about worship today. Everybody has an opinion on it, right? And they think that their opinion is correct. It might be. Being a part of our worship team... I can tell you that we've gone through a lot of trial and error the past two to three years in finding out what worship is, what it isn't, how we pick music, etc., etc. Today, hopefully, I'm going to shed just a small amount of light on what authentic biblical worship looks like in a healthy church. So I'm actually going to start with the piece of scripture that we've been talking about in Acts for the past five weeks, and hopefully you can pinpoint where they're talking about worship. And this is Acts 2, 42 through 47. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to pull it out. We have Bibles in front of you or under your chair, if you have your device, or else we have it on the screen as well. So it's Acts 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So through this passage, we see that the early Christian church gathered together and they praised God, right? In verse 47, they're praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So they didn't neglect gathering together to worship. And that's our topic today. And I would say it's actually pretty difficult to find where to start. Well, where do we start when we talk about worship? And I want to ask the question, how do you define worship? What comes to mind? Maybe it's the music. I would say it's not a bad place to start. It's generally where people think, right? We're we're called the worship team. I mean, so, and we're commanded in God's word to sing. Psalm 96, 1 through 2 says, Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Each day proclaim the good news that he saves. Psalm 47, 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. That's pretty clear. And this isn't just in the Old Testament. We're commanded not once, but twice in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.19 says, Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. So we see that worship can, and it should involve music, obviously. But I want to propose today that it can happen without it as well. Worship is not simply the music that we sing on a Sunday morning. It's definitely a part of it, for sure, like we just saw, but it's not the main point. We need an entire sermon, probably, to discuss the music we sing on Sundays. 
and what that looks like, we probably need a six-month sermon series on worship itself. <laughs> but, so today, I just want to go back further and talk about our foundation for worship, what that looks like. And Bob Coughlin, in his book, Worship Matters, offers up a great statement on biblical worship. He says, Biblical worship is God-focused, so God is clearly seen, God-centered, God is clearly the priority, and God-exalting, God is clearly honored. Psalm 138 reflects this statement pretty well. 1 through 6, it says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with all my heart. I will sing your praises before the gods. I bow before your holy temple as I worship. I praise your name for your unfailing love and faithfulness. For your promises are backed by all the honor of your name. As soon as I pray you answer me, you encourage me by giving me strength. Every king in all the earth will thank you, O Lord, for all of them will hear your words. Yes, they will sing about the Lord's ways, for the glory of the Lord is very great. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. So from this psalm, we see that worship has a vertical nature, right? But it also has a horizontal nature. So vertically, what do I mean by that? What is a vertical element of worship? And simply, that's from the beginning to the end is about God. And David shows us that really well in the psalm we just read, right? He wasn't talking about how great he was. Who does he give thanks to? God. Who does he sing praises to? God. Whose ways will the kings sing about? God's, not David's. I think we're starting to see a little bit of a trend here, right? Another way we could ask these questions... Um, what engaged God's heart at the dawn of creation? God. What brings the greatest joy, fulfillment, and delight to God? Well, being God. Paul says this really well in Romans. Romans eleven thirty four through 36. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. So through that, we obviously see that everything comes from God and is for God. And that includes our worship. He created us so that we can share. We share in the joy of knowing him and worshiping him for him. And Paul says this similarly in Ephesians. He says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So, we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. So we see in that section of scripture that God chose us 
not so that we could reflect on ourselves and what we've done, but to join in on something that's been going on since before the foundation of the world. We get to share in that. And this, this portion is so important and crucial to grasp for worship because if we think back to the question I asked earlier, right? How do we define worship? What is worship? I would say, and this is what my thought was, I would say it most likely started with something that we do, right? Well, it's when, when I sing, when, when I do this, when I do that. And this probably stems from uh, a subconscious assumption that acceptable worship depends on our efforts, when in reality it doesn't, and it never will. We also aren't commanded to worship God because of some level of deficiency in him, right? But because there's a deficiency in us. We need to worship And we should first view worship as a gift of grace to us before it's even an offering to God. The only reason we can worship in the first place is through the Holy Spirit that's been gifted to us through his grace. Ephesians 2.18 says that for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We get to benefit We get the benefit. We get to share in the perfect offering of the Son to the Father from the Holy Spirit. So, we gather to give glory to God as the end means of our worship. Instead of gathering to declare our great achievements apart from him. So this is the vertical element of worship. And without it, we aren't worshiping at all. Again, it's the relationship that we have to God because of the grace that he's been gifted to us. So I've actually fallen into somewhat of a trap the past, man, probably two years. It's a trap of thinking that there's no level of worship that is horizontal or that there is no level of worship that includes building one another up with encouragement or any worship that has anything to do with us. I thought that this made worship man-centered. It was a false teaching. And of course, we can fall too far to one end of the spectrum and make worship all about ourselves, kind of like we talked about, right? If that's where we start with what we do. But New Testament Christians, as we saw in the scripture we read, gathered in large part to strengthen each other for the purpose of glorifying God in their daily lives. And we'll expand a little bit more about this concept later. But Paul told the church in Corinth something similar to what we're just talking about. 1 Corinthians 14.26 says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation Let all things be done for building up. It's right there. Let all things be done for building up. So Paul shows us that within our gathered worship settings, like what we're doing right now, we are meant to build each other up, encourage one another for the glory of God, for that purpose. We, of course, don't 
pursue building up or edification as it's a, the churchy term is, right? Edification. We don't pursue that for its own sake. That's not the initial thing. Or I think it will quickly become man-centered if that's all we focus on. Sometimes our weekly gatherings can become about meeting people's needs and making sure everyone is happy, which is a dangerous place to be. That's where we start. But we can bring attention to why we're really gathered in the first place. And, like we've read before in Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. David Peterson says it really well. Edification, or the building up of the church, and worship are different sides of the same coin. This does not mean that prayer or praise is a means to an end, namely that building up, right, edification. We worship God because of who he is and because of his grace towards us. So we see that there's a really healthy tension. I don't know if you guys feel it. I feel it. I feel this healthy tension around these two portions of worship. So to say it hopefully a little bit clearer, First, we gather so that God will be worshipped, yes, and also that his people will be built up for his glory and because of his grace. So our second point starts to bring some expansion upon these topics of vertical and horizontal relationship. And the question begs itself, it might be a little bit uh, academic, but how does worship function as an individual and as a gathered body. So we're just talking about all these things. It's focused on God, right? We, it's for edification. Um, but where I would say is that worship is not just an event on Sunday mornings. It is life itself. So late last year, my family and I went to visit some friends in Sioux Falls, where we lived for about a year. And we actually got to have the opportunity to have lunch with our old pastor and his family. During lunch, and she's not in here, but it was Mackenzie's favorite restaurant, Chevy's, if anyone's curious, I asked Shelby, our old pastor, Jonathan's wife, what does your family worship look like? Something that I've been, been wrestling with. How does the worship look like within our family, outside of just Sunday morning? And she responded in a way that I didn't really expect her to say. She, she said, well... Our lives are worship. And I thought that was weird. Like, what are you talking about? It's very profound. It didn't make sense. But I realized that my own understanding of worship was severely deficient. Like a lot of people, I thought worship simply meant singing worship style songs, right? We have an entire genre called worship music. How could we think any different? Or we've heard comments at different times that um, after the sermon, we'll go back to worship. Or we've heard it so many times. Who's doing the worship this morning? I know that I've said things like this, and they just, not that they're necessarily wrong, they just don't give us the fullest picture of what we see in the Bible, of what worship is. And since we're talking about what the first century church looked like, right, that church in Acts they probably find it pretty weird to hear us talk like that, to just use terms like that. They'd find it odd. 
And we actually have, if you want more, we have plenty of Greek words in the New Testament that translate to worship, but none of them mean singing. And that's pretty weird because that's what we associate our worship with the most. Again, going back to the first question, how do you define worship? And maybe not everybody thought of the singing or what we just did on stage, uh, but it's definitely where mine went. But worship that pleases God isn't just restricted to certain actions, liturgical practices within the church, or some sort of man-made ritual. Jesus said it so well in John 4, 23 through 24. He said, The hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus didn't say we need... um, a building to worship in spirit and truth. We don't need meetings and rituals as an essential part of our worship. Our whole lives were made to worship in both spirit and truth. Or, what he meant there is the truth about Jesus Christ as it is revealed through the Holy Spirit. Everything we do is offered up as a sacrifice of praise to God the author of Hebrews shows us this well. Hebrews thirteen fifteen through 16 says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Craig talked about it two weeks ago, right? When we give generously, that's a form of worship. When we serve others at any time, that's a form of worship. Telling other people about the gospel, about Jesus, that is a form of worship. Romans 12.1 continues this connection between our lives and worship. And we've read this before. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And here it is, which is your spiritual worship. Paul shows us that it's no longer a sacrifice of bulls or rams and sheep that are acceptable to worship as God, but our very lives. Bob Coughlin says it well again. He says, biblically speaking, there's no sacred or secular distinction in our lives. We've all heard those terms, secular, right? Every moment is an opportunity to worship God. Church buildings aren't sacred, and family rooms aren't secular. Both are places where God can be worshipped in spirit and truth. So, does this mean we we don't need to gather as a church? I just said that it's not essential to worship. What's What's the point of this? What's the point of what we're doing right now? Is it even important? 
Well, simply put, gathering as a congregation is very important. But it is only about an hour out of the 167 other hours of the week. Right? And I'd like to refer to this time as corporate worship. We may have heard that before, but that's what we're talking about when we say corporate worship. What's occurring at this time? And corporate worship is important. And I would even argue that it's crucial to God's purpose for his people, as we touched on earlier. The author of Hebrews would say this well in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. He says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we're literally, in the Bible, commanded to gather together. We talked about this before, but it's good to remind you guys, because we need encouragement and support. How could you ever do this by yourself? Those other 167 hours of the week are very important. And we should be gathering throughout the week together, encouraging and edifying throughout the week as well. But, of course, we still sin and can be easily deceived by our hearts. This gathering of the church helps us to realize our own self-reliant and self-serving tendencies that occur in our lives. And again, that can't be done on your own. I know it can't for me. I'll just lie to myself. And again, I don't know about you, but I'm prone to self-exalting. I'm, prou- I'm prone to boasting about myself. If you ask me how my life's going or anything or what I do, I just talk about me, right? Just talk about me. What do we truly worship? What idols exist in our lives? Show me your schedule planner or your bank account or mine and I'll show you the idols that exist in our lives. Kenzie and I even felt it as a family as we went on vacation about two weeks ago. We didn't come for that Sunday and it was odd. It felt misplaced. Our souls felt like they were lagging in a way that couldn't be explained. We need the gathered church to remind us of who Christ is and his utmost importance in our lives. So in both contexts, together and apart, we're aware that this is the reason we've been created. Pretty sure Bob Coughlin said this too. To magnify the greatness of God in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. That might be boring, but it's true. That might not be the one-line zinger you're expecting today, but it's true. We've talked about a lot today. In a short period of time, we walk through worship having both these vertical and horizontal elements to them, these relationships, and worship being both a private, constant lifestyle and as the body of Christ, what's occurring right now, where we gather together to worship as one people. And we realize that worship has many facets, and again, we could do... I truly believe we could take months to talk about this topic. I'm only scratching the surface here. I hope that 
I gave you a foundation of what biblical, authentic worship looks like. And before I wrap it up for us here, I know I talked about him a lot, but Bob Coughlin, he wraps it up well for us, much better than I could. He says, after 30 years of leading worship, I've realized that worship isn't just an opportunity to use my musical gifts. It's more than a heightened emotional experience or a way to make a living. It's way more than what we do on a Sunday morning. Worship is about what we love, what we live for. It's about who we are before God. Our lives aren't something that's meant to be sectioned or siloed off. You can't have distinctions between work life, family life, church life. That's not what we see in God's word. We won't truly worship, like Jesus said, in spirit and truth until we surrender all parts of our lives to God to be used for his purposes.